From the office of the City Auditor in Austin, Texas, this is Redistrict ATX, your place for learning all about the redistricting process. I'm your host, Maria Stroth. In this episode, we're discussing Austin's changing demographics. To help us understand how Austin has changed over the years and how that might impact redistricting, I'm joined by the city's demographer, Ryan Robinson. Welcome to Redistrict ATX, Ryan. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Good morning, Maria. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling our listeners a little about your role with the city? Sure. The uh, the city's demographics work program is primarily a population work program. um, And I focus on measuring population change, measuring racial and ethnic change, um, uh, levels of household characteristics. uh, And it's... Uh, I've, I've been doing this for the last 30 years. It's my hometown. I've been able to practice the craft that I'm trained to do, and it's all happened in Austin, Texas. So it's been it's been uh, it's been a heck of a ride. That's awesome. Since you've lived here since you were growing up, I imagine you've seen a lot of changes. What changes stand out to you? Well, certainly the the blinding flash of the obvious is um, the population growth, the enormous amount of population growth that we've uh, that we've experienced. Um, you know, when I was born here in 1959, there were um, uh, under 200,000 folks. Now we are at the doorstep of reaching the mark of one million residents, and we are soon to become the tenth largest city in the United States. So certainly, enormous population growth, enormous job growth. The city has become. I think a, a true uh, global competitor city. Uh, we're so much more diverse than we used to be, ethnically, racially, socially, economically, culturally, and we're a much more fluent city than we used to be. But uh, all of those changes have happened during my tenure with the city. So the first time Austin created geogra- geographic districts for city council was in 2013. Can you talk a little bit about what Austin looked like then and how that's changed since 2013? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a minor point, but it was actually we we went back to districts in 2013. We we were a uh, we had districts in the 50s. Um, they were called wards, and that's you know an interesting part of our history. We uh, we we shifted, we changed the the, the charter, and went to an at-large city. And we've been, you know, we were, but you're right, we were an at-large city, meaning that we would elect city council members from all over the city since the mid-50s. But in 2013, we went back to uh, to geographic representation. And I think it's worth mentioning that we had given the voters, we had given residents of the city of Austin six different chances, six different opportunities to vote. Do you want to go back to districts? Do you want to, do you want to leave being an at-large city? And they had rejected that choice up until the election, the famous election in, in 2013. And I think that the biggest difference was that by 2013, it really was all about geographic representation. Um, at that time, when we shifted and went to a 10 ones, you know, 10 single member districts uh, and, and one mayor, we were the largest city in the United States still electing its council at large. That dubious distinction now falls to Columbus, Ohio. But since these districts were drawn in uh, in 2013, using I will point out using decennial 2010 block level data, um, the city has changed appreciably. So, first and foremost, we've added 200,000 residents since 
2010. And that really will be the, uh, the biggest challenge as the newly formed independent redistricting uh, commission, you know, rolls their sleeves up and, uh, and, and, some people even want to say adjust the district. Others want to say they're, they're going to be redrawn. But first and foremost, the biggest difference, the biggest challenge is going to, we're going to have to figure out how to accommodate these 200,000 new people because the districts have to be almost in perfect balance with one another in terms of total population. So certainly enormous population growth since, since 2010, since these districts were created. And then back to this notion of how much more fluent we are. And so let me just hang some data on that. Um, roughly in 2010, 30% of our families in the city made $100,000. That share has gone up and over half. So in, in that, in that, you know, that, that roughly nine, nine, you know, depending on talking about data from 2010, but in that during that period, you've gone from 30% to 50% of families making more than $100,000. And so for that kind of change to have happened, you would have had to have had a lot of incoming higher uh, income households, but also the displacement, the exiting of a lot of lower income households. And then the final thing I'll, I'll touch on that I think is going to be important to the new commission is the trajectory of our diversification has, has changed. It's interesting that for decades, our, our Hispanic Latino share of total was increasing steadily. It's actually today less than it was in 2010. It was roughly at 35% of the total population in 2010. It's now about 32%. Um, during that same period, the non-Hispanic white share of total has remained almost exactly at 48%. So we're still very much a, a majority minority community, but I would have expected that non-Hispanic white share to continue to drop. It has not. And, 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 uh, and worthy of note is we have had an increase in absolute numbers and an increase in share from our African-American population. And that reverses a decades-long trend of a decreasing share of total on the part of Black Austinites. And, and then finally, I'll mention a continue to see huge growth out of our Asian community. And that's a big bucket. You know, the Census Bureau classifies you as Asian if you are from Pakistan to Japan. In Austin's case, the three largest groups are Chinese, Vietnamese, and Indian. And even that's changing. We're, that, we're beginning to see increased diversity within that community. So those three big points, in, uh, enormous population growth since, since the districts were drawn, roughly about 200,000, huge in, in, increase in, in affluence, and then a change in the, the uh, diversification trajectory. And then one other thing I'll mention, Maria, is that that, that 200,000, right, it didn't equally, it was not equally distributed among the 10 districts. So now those districts are out of balance. And that will be the job of the new commission is to basically, again, you, you use the verb you want, adjust, redraw, but they need to, those districts need to be brought back into balance. So, but I think what I was hearing, you were describing a lot of changes in Austin's demographics, in the population and in the makeup of that population. And I know you touched on this a little bit, but can you explain a little bit more about how those changes in the population will affect the current redistricting process? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, back to this, the, the idea that since the districts were drawn, the city has gained, has added 200,000 people. And that, that addition, that gain has not occurred equally within the 10 districts. So the districts, because of the notion of one person, one vote, which is in the U.S. Constitution, those districts have to be within about 5% 
in terms of the total population of each other. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, you know, let me let me let me use District Eight as an example. It's it's a largely suburban district. It it includes Oak Hill. It, it covers much of southwestern Austin, and it has experienced quite a bit of growth. Um, and compare that to something like District Four, which has experienced much less growth. And so one of the one of the simple tasks, but it's it's easier said than done, is the commission will need to basically make District Eight smaller and make District 4 bigger so that they begin to approach this balance. And so that's kind of the interesting, hard-to-know concept and why we're so eager to have a rock-solid decennial census 2020 count because we really won't know that growth. We have a general sense of which districts have grown more rapidly than the others, but we won't know for sure until we get back that block-level decennial census data. So is that data that the commission will have when they do their work? So that's also a good question. It's a topical question. The Census Census Bureau has asked basically for an extension. They've asked Congress, the U.S. Congress, for an extension. If it were not for the pandemic, we would be in a stage of Census 2020 where they would begin to be doing what they call non-response follow-up, right? And that's a real bureaucratic way of talking about They'd be going out and knocking on doors, right? And so everyone who has answered the census, they have that information, but there's usually a big gap. Um, sometimes only maybe 65 or 70 percent of people will, on their own, self-respond is the term. And then during the summer, uh, the Census Bureau sends folks out. So all of that that timeline has changed. But let me finish the thought. Were it not for the pandemic, uh, the Census Bureau would be on schedule to deliver the those decennial data, those block level counts, right? Count everyone in the country. They'd be on schedule to deliver those data to the president by December 31st. They're not going to make that deadline. And they, because now they, they're, they're way behind on this. They have not even initiated the non-response follow-up. So the point I think that is uh, germane for, for this discussion and for the commission is more, and we still don't know exactly when, but more than likely, they won't be looking at the data for months and months after we had originally wanted them to be looking at the data. Now, there's still a whole lot to do. We've got lots of work to form the commission, put them together. That's a heck of a task. Um, that's, you know, you guys in your office, you know, uh, led by the uh, uh, indomitable um, Jason Nadavi. Um but, but it's a serious issue, right? And so we still don't know when we will get our hands on that, with hope, solid decennial block level data. Um, that has been put in flux. Awesome. Thanks for helping me understand that. So in terms of the next time we redraw council districts, the next time we go through this process in 2030, what do you think Austin will look like then? Well, I really think it's maybe it's kind of a boring forecast, more of the same. I mean, I do think the pandemic is going to affect Austin probably, you know, traditionally when we face economic recessions, we love to say that Austin is last in, first out. That probably won't be the case this time around. I'm a little bit more optimistic than I was about Austin's growth potential than I was six weeks ago. But think about it, right? At the heart of Austin's economic success story, there's always been a noisy, rowdy party. And that's going to be really hard to do with, you know, a very different sort of cultural social landscape. But with that aside, 
I think, you know, in, in 2030, we'll, we'll be, the, the folks who will be rolling up their sleeves to redraw districts then will be dealing with a whole lot more population growth. It, you know, it probably won't kick back in for another couple of years, but, but, but it will grow again. The fundamentals of Austin are just undeniable. I think that we will be a more diverse city because population diversity is a huge strength. So I think it'll just be kind of more of the same, you know, at, at, uh, at some point though, and it, and it, and it may be a trend that has, that has stopped for a little while, the so-called opportunity districts that were originally drawn to empower the, the voting voice and the voting strength of in-city minorities, those districts are slowly becoming more and more non-Hispanic white. That certainly is the trend over this past decade that may or may not continue going forward. And I think the best example of what I'm talking about is District 1. Right? District 1 was crafted to be the city's African-American opportunity district. Well, when we take a look at the decennial data from 2020, we'll see that voting age African-Americans are actually the third most populous ethnic and racial group in that district, right? So it will almost be sort of the historic black district for Austin. Probably uh, leading that of uh, the share of total in District 1 will be Hispanics, as that was the case in 2010. But within District 1, a huge increase in non-Hispanic whites. So I think at some point, the notion and purpose of what is an opportunity district, what are the, what's the purpose, what are we trying to achieve with that, that might have to be something that the commission uh, looks at again. That might be something that the commission looks at again in 2020. You know, there's, there's nothing that says they have to recreate those four opportunity districts. The Department of Justice, we, don't, we no longer submit anything to the DOJ, so we don't really get approval or disapproval from anyone. Now, I will say quickly, though, that if, if a new commission were to go in and say, hey, let's just draw districts based on communities of interest and not maximizing racial and ethnic uh, shares of total, there would be a quick and rapid response from this community that would say, no, we still want opportunity districts. So if there were one thing that you wanted people to take away from this podcast and from this topic, what would it be? Well, I think that we know that we're going to, that we're going to very much need to redraw, adjust the districts because we know that there's been an enormous amount of population growth. And we know that population, that that population growth has been uneven. And so it's kind of like, we really won't know the magnitude of that task until we open up right on Christmas, on virtual Christmas morning for demographers everywhere. We open up that census 2020 uh, a box of data and, and, and see which districts grew the most, which districts changed the most in terms of race and ethnicity. But I, but I do have confidence in this process. I think I am very proud of the, of the process, the initial 20, 2013 process. It really, truly was independent. And so I would just tell people, stay tuned. This is going to be an exciting episode in this city's um, continuing, uh, fascinating history. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Maria. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Redistrict ATX. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news, information, and much more on Austin's redistricting process. You can also visit our website to learn more about redistricting at redistrictatx.org. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Spotify and iTunes so you never miss an episode.